0: Welcome to Transform, a podcast highlighting the people and ideas shaping the future of senior living. I'm Tim Mullaney with Senior Housing News. A senior living pioneer, Brandywine co founder and CEO Brenda Bacon is now pushing the industry toward its next chapter. Old capital structures and operating models must change to accommodate a new generation of consumers and a market in full risk territory, Bacon believes. Through Brandywine's own experiences, she's grown skeptical of triple net leases, and she's embracing the sea change as senior living adapts to the rising demographic of aging boomers. With a portfolio of about 30 communities, Mount Laurel, New Jersey based Brandywine is balancing innovation for the future with serving the resident today. Before we hear my interview with Brenda Bacon, we'd like to thank our podcast sponsor today, Point Click Care. They know financial health is integral to your success and want to help you reach your goals. Visit www.pointclickcare.com to learn how they can help you achieve financial success. And now, my interview with Brenda Bacon, co founder, president, and CEO of Brandywine Women. Brenda, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Jim. It's happy to be here.
0: So, I want to jump in by reading something that you told my colleague, Tim Regan. I think the two of you chatted at Nick. And we ran a story with this quote from you after the conference, and it's really stayed with me. You said, you'll hear a lot of people say, oh, well, this happened in 2008, and it happened in 2002 when the industry got overbuilt, and so this too shall pass. I, for one, don't believe we're in a cycle. I think we're in a sea change. So, I'm just curious if you can elaborate on that a little bit and talk about why you think senior housing is in a sea change rather than just another real estate cycle.
1: First of all, I think sea changes are good things. I think that we like to see change and progress, and who wants to be bored doing the same old thing? And I think in our situation, we have no choice but to recognize a sea change. We're pretty much going to spend, in my opinion, the next seven to ten years servicing the kind of clients that we have now, which come from a certain generation that differs quite a bit from the generation that we'll be serving ten years from now. And we, we hear a lot about what is it that the baby boomers want and what do uh, what should we do to prepare for them. And I think, you know, the the exciting part of it is, because you don't have this in most industries, we have 76 million new customers coming our way in the way of the baby boomers, and those 76 million customers all need a place to live. And we should position ourselves to be that place that they choose, but I think it's going to be a different kind of experience, not only in the physical plant part of it, but also in the lifestyle of what happens, how they use our our senior living communities and what their demands will be.
0: Got it. So what are some common senior living practices today or that have worked well in the past that you anticipate are going to have to change?
1: I think that we will learn more about that as time goes on. We're all certainly spending a lot of time thinking about it and talking about it. And with any product or service, the thing that you want to focus on is (laughs) what is your customer like? How do they think? How do they approach the world? What makes them happy? And what do they need? And so when you think about, baby boomers as a a generation and look at the strongest characteristics of that generation. They have a very strong work ethic. Uh, Something like 65 percent of them intend to work after they're 65 and they're not doing it. Only half of them are doing it because they feel they need to work. The other half are because they enjoy work. They have defined their lives a lot by work and they don't see themselves just retiring. So they have a strong work ethic. They're highly independent. They're extremely competitive. I think we can agree that uh, that baby boomers are, are competitive and self-assured. They're very future-oriented. They think about the world and what's going to be more than they do think about the past. They're crusaders, so they're less likely to accept what is just because it's always been that way. They like human interaction they, they and causes and teams and changing the world, and, and they are pretty passionate about those things in their own ways. So I think that as we look at them as our customer, we say, well, what, what do those characteristics have to do with what we should be thinking about?
0: Great. So how is Brandywine adapting to the future given that vision of the consumer and maybe that difference in the sales process? Are you thinking about different programming as you look at future development? Are you looking at different physical plants? Any details you can share or sneak previews of sort of concepts that are in the works?
1: Uh, we're, we're doing a lot of things. I think that you, you would be surprised, you know, as we think about... What is it that our customer wants? And I, and I say that today because I think we cannot make the mistake of saying that we've got to figure out what the baby boomer wants because there's so many of them and start to overlook the population that we're currently serving and what they want. And there's certainly some things in common, but there's some things that are not so much in common. Our customers now are, I think, more looking at the hospitality aspects of where they live, the interaction, the things to do, the reason they get up in the morning, choosing when they want to eat, what they want to eat, which venue they want to eat in, what activities, if you want to call them activities, activities is almost a word that's, uh, that sounds childlike uh, to, to me when I think about our population now where, you know, they, they want to attend classes at the local colleges. They want to go see shows on Broadway. They may have, you know, beginning Parkinson's or other physical ailments, but that, that doesn't stop their, their passion, their interest, their mind from working. They still want to be able to be the best that they can be, lead the best lives that they can lead. And so to the extent that this industry kind of started out with, we'll provide a safe, healthy home for people to live in when they can no longer live at home, I think it is a a much different situation already and will continue to be as we go forward. And that is that the senior living community will be more like a neighborhood in a town So you would be, you know, you'd have 100 roommates, if you will, that you will share common areas with and space with and interests with. And you may not like all of those 100 people that you live with, just like you don't like all the 100 neighbors that you live with, but you will find five, six, 10 that you do like, that you'll go out to dinner with.
0: Right. I like what you said about senior living becoming more like a town. And I think that is a trend we've observed over the course of the last year, a couple of years, in terms of where new developments are coming up, more of them in mixed-use, master plan, community-type locations that do provide a lot of access to amenities, cultural uh, attractions, transportation. And I assume that's part of what you're thinking about is where to put future communities in terms of developing this sort of town model so I guess can you confirm that and then I'm also curious about within the community itself do you see a need to create more of this sense of being like a town because I think that's another thing we hear is that um, creating social connections is a big challenge and that occupancy erosion happens when residents don't uh, find friends within the community
1: Uh, that is so true we have a big effort going on in Brandywine now that we call the Linking Project. And the Linking Project is is basically in that, particularly in that first 24 hours, but beyond that, finding and connecting those people in your small town, your community, that have common things in common so that you all, you immediately feel at home. So in our so in our community say if someone grew up in South Philadelphia or their father had a store in North Philadelphia or they went to one of the Catholic high schools or they played football or they danced ballet. Whatever if you can find for someone a new a new resident coming into the community, three or four people immediately where they have something in common and make sure that they meet them. It doesn't have to be, you know, it's not match.com or anything like that but just somebody to talk to and just say I'd love for you to meet Angela. She grew up in South Philadelphia too. You you may have run across each other or you know i'd love for you to meet bernie he's uh served in the in the pacific during world war ii or he was in vietnam or something like that and and automatically you've given somebody someone to talk to and when they know that there's someone there that's like them they may not be end up being their best friends because you may and of choosing friends that you have less in common with. But it, it starts that process of making a connection with other people that you're going to live with. Uh, and, and, and I think that that's important. And if you don't do that, it's, if it's just, a new resident comes in, and everybody's kind of very nice to them. And our department heads go by and say, Do you need anything? And give me a call if you need anything. If you, that's not the same thing as saying, I want you to meet Angela. You guys are going to have a great time talking about X, Y, and Z. And so I think that's a very important thing is to make someone feel at home and then they're not moving in with strangers or being put in a home with strangers.
0: We've seen a rise in senior housing operators doing RIDEA rather than triple net deals with REITs. And so there's been some question about whether what the future for triple net leases is and whether that's a good sort of capital structure at all. And a provider CEO recently told me, operators need to see that leasebacks rarely end well. Many properties are just not performing as had been expected since the lease is rising at 3% annually while other expenses are growing at 3% to 5% annually and the age of the property continues to go up. So that's sort of the context. Brandywine converted to Ridea with well Tower this year and at that time, I think it was Tom DeRosa, someone at Tower said, "Brandywine is just another example of fixing a broken capital structure that resulted from a period of time when REITs value were valued at how large they could grow their asset portfolio." So, with all of that said, what are your thoughts on triple net leases? Do you wish at all you could turn back time and make a different decision about that initial relationship with the triple net lease with, with Welltower? What did you sort of learn through the Brandywine experience?
1: Well, I learned a lot through the Brandywine experience, and you would not be able to give me a triple net lease. You couldn't give me a building with a triple net lease That's, that was looked like it was fine, and it's going to be fine, and Brenda, don't worry about it, because it's just not true. I don't think triple net leases, uh, with all due respect to my colleagues that are in triple net leases, I do think, particularly in the territory we're in now, where you've got an oversupply. You've got – so oversupply means you've got empty beds. You've got more customers than, than – more, more supply than you have customers right now. You've got a labor market that's very challenging. So in some ways, you're, you're in full risk territory. So if you're in full risk territory and you have a triple net lease that no matter what territory you're in, it's going to go up 3% a year. So it is agnostic, totally about what may be going on in the market. And there is no sense of partnership about we're in this together and we're going to figure out what's going on in the market and we're going to together work to do our best to be the best given the current market conditions and and be able to overcome those conditions. So, we did change from a triple net lease uh, i think what, what uh, whoever your quote is from well terror is absolutely true and the and the quote from the industry colleague there there's lots of disruption around this right now there's also a lot of money coming still coming into the industry from private equity and and other sources uh, of funds because of the pure fact that again, they're going to be 76 million baby boomers. Mm-hmm. Now there, there's a lot of money that's going to get lost between now and when, in my opinion, the baby boomers, if they do choose senior, if, if we're smart enough to build what they will want to come to, then you know it's going to be a happy ending and and things are going to be wonderful. I think in the meantime our greatest chance of doing that is to form a, a an alliance uh, between the operating partners and the financial partners where we both understand what our needs are that we're aligned in terms of common goals we are able to talk honestly to each other so that if you have a building that has been doing great for many years has basically quote unquote owned the market and all of a sudden, there are two new buildings, one with one, one and a half miles, the one way and one, two miles the other way. Sounds like I'm a little bit familiar with this kind of circumstance, right? <laughs> and and they're, they're brand new shiny pennies. And they moved and, and they built there because, wow, there is a building in that market that makes a lot of money and is always full. And so we should go to that market. Well, when two other buildings decide to come into that market, you've got three times as many apartments now in that market, and there simply isn't, there simply aren't enough customers to satisfy that. So you therefore could be in this situation, you have a financial partner who says, wait a minute, what's going wrong here? Why, you know, this building used to be full with a waiting list, and now there's uh, 20 open apartments, you know, so the assumption, how are you going to fix this? yeah you know, what have you done? what's gone wrong and and you need to fix this and you're not going to make your you know uh, your covenant on your triple net lease and you might have the people who are putting who put up the new building saying, Gee, I thought this was a a plus market and you were going to fill up in a year or two years and here we are sitting here, and you're filling up very slowly, and we're losing a lot of money so I think all of those things can happen and be true and they are happening as we as we talk today. I think being able to sit down with your financial partner if you're aligned. So basically if you're losing money financial partner, I'm losing money too as the operator and, and often we own a little bit of, of each person's kind of major part of the deal and we talk reasonably about interventions, things that we're doing and be sensible that it may take two or three years for that particular building to restabilize or do things or find out things that we can do to keep it from destabilizing. One of the things I think is a really bad idea for our industry is price discounting. And so we've got a lot of price discounting going on out there, and when you think about it, you are, you know, you're degradating the, the rent roll so that your, your customers are paying less and less for your product. And by the way, every time you bring in a customer, you've got to bring in employees to serve that customer. And so you're getting less money if you're discounting and your employees are costing you more. And, it, it, you know, it doesn't take much, you know, of, of a business person to be able to say this is not. This is not a sustainable situation. But I think a lot of people get caught up in, in a relationship with their financial partner that does not allow the, them to sit down and say, okay, this is our situation here. Let's take these steps or, or support the operators they are taking these steps and, you know, and handling situations on an individualized basis because, in a lot of cases, what's going on in one building and one market can be decidedly different than what's going on in another building. I think we've got that kind of relationship now with Well Tower where we're, we are aligned very much all the way through as, as far as commitment to the company, the, the type of product, how we're going to run it, the commitment to quality, the commitment on the financial sharing for success and the financial pain for failure. And that makes for very honest relationships, I think, that bear well for everybody.
0: That's interesting. I'm wondering, can you help me? Uh, I guess I'm curious about what you say makes so much sense about the need for alignment and everyone have skin in the game and the risks of the triple net lease, given uh, the kind of operating environment that everyone is in today. But triple net leases were so common um, yeah. in the past. And I'm wondering what drove so many operators into that structure that now maybe some people are seeing is not working out? Do you think it was just that RIDEA was new, it was untested, that wasn't really an option? Do you think part of it was that um, this kind of environment uh, hadn't really been experienced before in the industry? What, what was sort of the history there?
1: It's a very interesting history, and I, I remember talking to someone about it the other day because I was uh, I was at a dinner and we were talking about triple net leases, and there was a REIT operator there, a REIT uh, person there, a couple of operators, and I'm not going to mention any of these names, but I used to be vehemently opposed to RIDEA. I liked triple net leasing. I like triple net leasing because I'm an entrepreneur, and most operators are entrepreneurs. And so you want to own Your bricks and mortar. You want to own your operations, your P and L. You want to run your business, and so you would rather just pay an amount to someone for for leasing the property. But it's still, you know, you're still calling all the shots and taking all the risk. And for many years, you know, when our buildings, our portfolio, I remember saying to, um, I'll say this because Granger Cobb, when bless his heart when uh, when i were talking one day and and he asked me what my occupancy was and i said it's 97% and he said brenda he said I, no i mean the whole portfolio i said it's 97% <laughs> and he said And I said, yeah. He says, why are you standing here at this conference if your portfolio is at 97%? Why aren't you off in Europe or on a beach or something? Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, it it was at that point in our markets, you know, you could, you know, have, have very great success because there wasn't an oversupply. And, we were building a high barrier to entry market, and I think if all is good, then triple net works just fine. If, if the market is great and you just pay, the, you know, pay your financial partner a check every month like you send to the mortgage company or to, the, or to your landlord, it's fine, but it does not work. Triple net does not work when you have downturns or industry headwinds. So when you had the Great Recession in 2008, it's, triple net's not going to work. When uh, even you know in the skilled nursing industry, which is a extremely hard industry to operate in, if they change the reimbursement rules, then triple net doesn't work because you can't pay. You know you can't pay the escalators. Mm-hmm. Triple net is a design that works when you know when everything's coming up roses. And as soon as it doesn't, then it gets very bad very quickly for all parties.
0: I don't mean to harp on this. Maybe one last question is, given that Brandywine being one example, but other operators too, I think, are coming around to your understanding and philosophy on this and are making that switch to Ridea or some kind of joint venture agreement with their investors or owners, do you think that one of the forthcoming big challenges is going to be Figuring out the best way to work now as partners with these ownership groups, who are going to, I think, we already see become much more uh, hands-on in terms of their asset management practices.
1: I do think that that's you know going to be something that we have to. You have to put a lot of time and effort into it. I'm I'm a very transparent person, so I like I like that. But I'm also a person that that's very command and, and control. So if someone comes in and says, well, my partner says, gee, Brenda, I think, you know, I know how we've got some ideas, we've run some algorithms, and we've, we've, you know, we've got people who can tell you how to better staff that second shift at the Sycamore, I'm not very receptive to that. Okay, Uh, so there are there going to be those problems where people, you know, will financial partners will say, well, now that we've got skin in the game, in terms of operations, and we don't have to just worry about the lease payment, we need to get more savvy about how do you really operate efficiently operate. These companies in these buildings, and I think they do need to get educated about it. That education doesn't usually come out of a book that they can read, or, and it doesn't come naturally from what they've been doing with their life thus far, which is financial modeling for, you know, for the most case. So I think we've got a lot to, to learn from, from our side in dealing with them about, you know, their, their, responsibilities to their shareholders or to their limited partners and the quarterly reporting and, you know, SOX compliance and all of that. And they've got a lot to learn about operations and regulatory considerations and just the the hospitality and the all the aspects of making a successful company a successful operation, not only, again, for your customer, but also for your for your employee. And so there are things that we all need to learn. And the, the more we're open to learning those, I think the more successful the relationship can be under idea.
0: I really, I guess I'm curious and wanted to point out that, you know, I've been on hold, for instance, sometimes when I call Brandywine and hear the, the message that gets played when you're on hold and it's, describing the services. And it's uh, very uh, alluring in terms of the hospitality offerings, talk of personal butlers and uh, concierges, and it sounds like a great lifestyle. And I think that a lot of people associate Brandywine with that type of offering, very hospitality driven. But I think Brandywine also has this other side. You mentioned it in the sort of move-in process, all of the questions you ask about potential residents' healthcare needs and I believe that all the way back in 2013, Brandywine opened a, a community on the medical mile in New Jersey that was close to a Genesis rehab and a hospital. So this is another trend we've been seeing of integration of senior living within the greater healthcare continuum. And so I guess my question is, how is that medical mile property working out? Do you foresee future developments in close proximity to various healthcare? Or are there other ways that you're seeing uh, this kind of integration happening in senior living and other types of healthcare?
1: I think for the benefit of our our residents, we do have to have good, very good relationships with the best hospital systems and and healthcare providers, not just the institutional-based hospital systems, but the healthcare system in in general. And that is because our customers are high users of that. So yeah, in our buildings, for example, it, and let me apologize. I'm sorry that you learned so much about us about being on hold. Um, well, make sure <laughs> it, that it, that it could, the,
0: the message plays quickly. I wasn't on hold for very long, but you packed a lot in. Enter- it. it's, it's I hope
1: it was entertaining, and I'll give <laughs> yeah. you a special number to call from now on, Tim. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I like. I actually like to hear what people have uh, during during their hold music. It's pretty interesting.
1: <laughs> When you think about Brandywine, we're one of the few companies that has a nurse on site, a licensed nurse on site, 24-7. Okay, so, so one would say, well, why do you do that? Are you taking really, really uh, high acuity people? We take our fair share of acuity. You know, we, we are, we're not afraid. We've owned nursing homes before. We kind of understand that. We don't go as far as other companies in terms of acuity, but we are not, we're not afraid of that. We, we have nurses, only nurses give meds. We don't use med techs. So you've got a nurse in the building, you've got nurses giving your meds. That gives families a certain amount of comfort. It also gives your physician and hospital community, healthcare community comfort. Uh, It's always been my experience that emergencies don't happen at 2 in the afternoon. They happen at 2 in the morning. If you don't have a nurse in the building, then your care manager basically has to, in most cases, 911 someone out if there is a problem. So if a resident develops a rash, you know, on their arm and you know they're experiencing some discomfort from it enough that you know the the care manager has to pay attention to it, a physician will not talk to a care manager. But if there's a nurse there. The physician will talk to a nurse, and the physician can say, "Oh, yeah, I changed her medication two days ago, and she's having a reaction to it, just put such and such on it or cold compress or whatever, whatever his instructions are, and she'll be fine. There's no need for you know the very scary two o'clock in the morning ride to the emergency room calling the family." and uh, disrupting the resident and all of that. So I do think it's very important that we pay attention to relationships with hospitals and medical providers so that they learn to trust us as part of the medical team. And many times people in the hospital systems that we work with, and we work with several big hospital systems, much as we did the medical mile one with Voorhees was our first, um, but we have similar relationships with Valley Hospital, with, with RWJ Barnabas, with Mainline Health. Uh, they learn to trust when a resident does, when one of our residents does become their patient for any reason, they have a sense of comfort and understanding the kind of quality, the kind of medical care we provide, the, who we are. They know who to talk to. All of that adheres to the benefit of our resident and their family. So, so we do that on purpose, because that gives our resident and the family a better experience. We have neuropsychologists that come into our buildings regularly that we keep on, we hire, that come in and work with families, particularly our memory care residents and their families. The, the doctors, primary care physicians from the hospital systems that we have these relationships with see our residents in our building. We do physical therapy every day in our building. So there is a close correlation between health care and Brandywine and, and the uh, more formal health care system. The hospitality, the butlers, the concierge, the all-day dining, that's, that's living. That's the living part. That's the, what makes your life happy and, and engaged and fun to live rather than sitting there just talking about your ailments. We're going to make sure that you have the services that you need from the healthcare standpoint and we work hard on that, but we work just as hard, if not harder, on making you happy every day.
0: Right. Well, I think that's probably a good note to end on. Is there anything we haven't talked about that you wanted to share?
1: No, I don't think so, but I made a note about that uh, that on-hold message, Jim. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I didn't mean it as a critique. I think it it, it did its job. It has stayed with me for sure, so uh, I think that's good. <laughs> well, uh, thanks so much. I enjoyed the conversation. And that does it for this episode of Transform. Once again, thanks go to our podcast sponsor today, Point Click Care. They know financial health is integral to your success and want to help you reach your goals. Visit www.pointclickcare.com to learn how they can help you achieve financial success. I'm Tim Mulaney. Thanks for listening.